0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, our focus is on immigration at the southern border. I'm joined by University of Arizona professor Dr. Anna Ochoa O'Leary and Sarah Pierce from the Migration Policy Institute to discuss arguably one of the most contentious issues since slavery. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Immigration on America's southern border as a public policy has become so infiltrated with fear and nativism that it's almost impossible to have a judicious conversation. Far from American desires to neatly construct a one-size-fits-all definition, there are multiple reasons why many face harsh and dangerous conditions to come from myriad countries by way of Mexico. To begin the conversation, I'm joined by Professor Anna Ochoa O'Leary. Professor O'Leary is Department Head, Mexican-American Studies at the University of Arizona. Professor Anna Cho O'Leary, welcome to the Public Morality.
1: Thank, thank you for having
0: me. And I'm, I'm going back, I'm thinking back about the, um, the caravans that President Trump warned us about um, during the midterm elections. I'm sure as you recall as well. Um, is, is the notion of a caravan um, something new to the immigration debate? Is that a new phenomenon?
1: Well, it uh, it is new in in some ways. Uh, there has been caravans in the past for other reasons. Um, you know, when uh, several years ago there was a caravan for justice, when uh, people got together. This was in Mexico. They were um, outraged at the lack of attention by the Mexican government towards the the narco traffickers. So. There was a caravan for peace and justice, so this is this is a little bit different. Um, it's people uh, actually banding together uh, for safety uh, to come to the U.S. to request asylum. So uh, I don't recall in in recent history of, of something of this kind of phenomenon. So yes, be, it's different. The concept of a caravan is not not new, but for the reasons that we've been exposed to this idea, it is it is fairly new. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I also recall back in 2016, then-candidate um, Donald Trump would lead a call and response where he'd say who's going to pay for the wall, and the, and the crowd would say Mexico, and um, it, it's, in my view, uh, it, 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 it really truncates what the issues are surrounding immigration, and it doesn't at all address um, the challenges of migration uh, from Central America and why. And I, I wonder if you could share your thoughts on that.
1: Well, yes, okay. So then um, that, that actually uh, is, is something that is uh, an old trick uh, you know, by nativists such as Donald Trump uh, to rally up support in a negative way against a certain people. So we saw that in the depression era. we've seen that of uh, similar types who very much try to malign and, um, a, a certain group of people for the purposes for, the politi- for their political purposes. So you know the, the reason why people are coming um, you know has it stems from a lot of our, Intervention in Central America, and not necessarily military intervention, but mostly in real recent years, um, economic intervention with something like CAFTA, which is the, um, the Central America Free Trade Agreement. Um, we, you know, prior to that, prior to CAFTA, we had NAFTA, which also intervened in Mexico's economy. Uh, resulting in a large number of immigrants coming from those states in Mexico that were particularly devastated economically. These were uh, poor regions in Mexico, um, and it, it affected mostly subsistence, agricultural subsistence-based societies and in, in, in areas of Mexico, which is why we had the large dramatic increase of Mexican migrants coming to the us starting in the mid late 90s shortly after NAFTA was implemented so in Central America we have very similar situation where um, the u.s um, uh, in mm. in cooperation with governments in Central America created CAFTA and CAFTA is, again, a free trade agreement. It allows foreign companies to enter these agreements with local governments, state governments, and uh, to the advantage of those particular industries. Um, so perhaps you, you know an example might help understand how that Please. happens. Please. Uh, like for example, in the case of Mexico, uh Once the U.S. entered this agreement with Mexico and Canada, um, there were certain stipulations as to what could be imported into Mexico, and one of those things that was imported uh, with the help of free trade was, was corn, right, corn products. So then Mexico was unable to compete with the cheap price of corn that was produced in the United States Mostly because we subsidize our farmers, right? Mexico's a smaller country. We're a larger country. You know, we paid more taxes that helped subsidize those farmers. Plus, the NAFTA agreement included um, a stipulation that Mexico would not subsidize their farmers. So then we had the upper advantage, and we put a lot of corn farmers out of business, So in in the areas of Central America, what we have there is, again, uh, agreements between the U.S. and the governments, And, uh, you know, we're we're talking about governments that are very corrupt that always go to the advantage of those industries and those uh, CEOs of these large companies who want to maximize their profits. So So foreign companies set up shops in Central America and once they put people out of business, then they, they have these factories and they have uh, places where workers who have been displaced as a result of the agreement then go to work at these factories uh, that are controlled by foreign interests. So then once they have the control over the workers, then they are free to manipulate or to lower the wages Uh, to influence laws so that, for example, uh, those governments no longer can enforce fair labour laws. And so then you have those populations becoming increasingly poorer because now those in control of the wages and the workforce are foreign companies who can lower the wages and make things more difficult for those workers. So what do you, what happens when you have the situation in, in Bucafta? Well, uh, many migrants, many people become migrants. They said, well, you know, we can't live off these wages. So then they move elsewhere. They move, in the case of Central America, they move either to Mexico or they come to the United States. And after, you know, the kind of traditional patterns for men to leave their homes, then later on, you know, women and children are left behind working in those factories. And they say, Well, you know, there's really no life for us here. We're not even earning enough money to feed our families here. So then they follow. So then this is what we this is what gets us to where we are currently is that you have so many women and children coming to the US Mexico border in an attempt to create a better life for themselves. Uh, so then add to that the violence. But that and then that's a, that's another dimension.
0: Hmm. No, and we certainly want to get to the the, the some some areas of your specific areas of expertise, which are women and children. We want to get to that. I just want to ask you one more thing here. Historically, if you would, you know the um, the nativism talk that you referred to earlier, that has certainly been ramped up by this administration. Um, notwithstanding the the toughness, and I'm using toughness in quotations, the the toughness on immigration did not begin. With the rhetoric of Donald Trump, it has a much longer shelf life, does it not?
1: That's correct. That's correct. And we can look at those waves of nativism throughout the history of the U.S. And in more recent years, I would say that this current wave began or was reinforced and strengthened after 9-11, even though we had parts of it before.
0: Uh, and, and in fact, I used to live in California, and I remember uh, a Republican candidate by the name of Pete Wilson running for governor against mm-hmm. Dianne Feinstein under the, and he ran under the uh, initiative Proposition One Eighty Seven. Uh, do, uh, do you remember that? And, and that's, yes, I do. And that was
1: <laughs> probably like at the at the start of the current wave of anti-immigrant political sentiment.
0: Yeah. And we al- we also forget that you mentioned after right after nine eleven. I don't know who started it, but it's it sort of uh, gotten terrorism got commingled with people coming across the border um, for economic reasons, and those and that argument sort of got commingled into one. I don't I don't know how that happened. I'm sure I'm sure you probably have some thoughts about that as well.
1: Well, well there's been there's been more research since. I mean, when when you're living at the time, it's really hard to make sense of so many things that are coming at you all at once, but, uh, you know, now that we're quite a ways out from 9-11, now there's been research that kind of goes back into that history, Um, and so, yeah, so it catches that wave of anti-immigrant sentiment that started in the 1990s, right, Um, with the Pete Wilson, as you mentioned, and, uh, you know, this is right at the cusp of when we begin to see the Uh, increase in migration from Mexico as a a result of NAFTA when NAFTA was in 1994. So you get to see the the Pete Wilson uh, issues come up right around 1994. A lot of pressure on our government. We have the 1996 Terrorism Act. We have the IRA, IRA, which is uh, another immigration reform bill that basically looked at, um, you know, trying to find ways to It was based on the Pete Wilson uh, Prop 187. And then you had the Welfare Reform Act, also in 1996, uh, which was not only did it try to go after uh, African-American, the so-called welfare mothers, right, but within that act uh, you had also an attack on on women, Mexican and immigrant women. Uh, This is where you get the term of anchor babies. You start to get all that anti-immigrant rhetoric and the dehumanization rhetoric of a certain certain groups of people and mostly these are uh, people of color and within that women of color as well so so then you had all this anti-immigrant sentiment already there but um, then in, after 9-11 all those people that had been clamoring for greater border security for the same reason then they get listened to. Then people say, oh, well, then maybe they were right. So then you start to have another set of laws start to be put into place after nine eleven. It gets It just fueled and affirmed some of those fears proposed by anti immigrant and, and uh, the racist element in our country, uh, so to speak.
0: So what I hear you saying is that 9-11, one of the unintended consequences of nine eleven. It gave legitimacy to nativism and, dare I say, racist rhetoric in the public discourse.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. And so then you start to attack all people of color, which includes uh, Middle Eastern uh, uh, people. Uh, and so then it, it was a perfect way of showing the how, how bad it can get based on uh, what so-called lack of security on our border. Even though uh, the people who came uh, to the uh, well to 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 the terrorist attacks were not uh, people who came through the borders, but it was uh, you know one of the problems with uh, this kind of move towards very right wing uh, philosophy in terms of the neoliberal concept is you know reduced uh, support for education. So basically, you sow the seeds of, of, of fear and mistrust. At the same time, you are undermining education, which is you know an educated public could easily see through that kind of misapplication of, of those fears. But if you're reducing funds to education at the same time that you're ramping up fears, well, then you kind of create this, this mix by which people are readily convinced uh, even though there is no substantiation of any of the information you are spreading and because you're you're creating your manufacturing ignorance because people aren't getting the education that they need in the schools to be able to make good decisions you know as adults would
0: that be would that be like um, and I'm, I'm just using the the rhetoric here would that be like the the, the remedy to, uh, for anchor babies is to ignore the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Something like that, right? <laughs>
1: well, yeah, that. And, and then it's also the fact that, you know, immigrant women actually of all the, all the groups, uh, ethnic groups in the United States, immigrant women from Mexico, the decline in babies, of infertility rates of that group uh, far surpassed any other group. Um, you know we don't we don't get with those sound bites the fact that you know women have been going into the labor force more and more not necessarily because now women are more liberated but because the wages have been cut uh to what was traditionally the the the, the sole breadwinner or like the male uh, bread breadwinner so you know all of that information gets lost when we're just being thrown sound bites that play to people's sensitivities if you're tend to be nativist well you're gonna listen to those sound bites that make sense to you uh, and then if you if you're trying to educate a public well it's like you know the teachers professors you're trying to put all that information out there it take that takes a lot of work because that's a lot of reading it's a lot of understanding and and the more you cut the avenues towards getting that information, well, then you start to produce a, a public that uh, gets their information from those sound bites and whatever doesn't cost as much work. And you have teachers leaving the profession because they're not being paid. So then really it becomes a really difficult, untenable situation if, if you want to get the facts out there that would make us a better and more educated public. Mm.
0: Uh, you know, Dr. O'Leary, in, in our haste to develop—my words, not yours—a a, one-size-fits-all definition at the southern border, um, talk about um, what the trek is like specifically for women and children who—who—and what are the conditions that force them? You sort of touched on it, but I want you to expand on, it if you would, that force them to leave, say. Um, Central America to, to migrate all the way to America, believing that this is their last best hope. Talk about that in detail, if you would.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I've I done quite a bit of research on the border. I've interviewed um, more than 100 women, uh, you know, on that same trek. And, of course, one of the questions that I had was, you know, why did you leave? Why did you leave uh, your community Knowing, I mean, why did you leave and now you're here at the border suffering all sorts of, you know, um, you know, attacks and, and inconveniences and violence. And, uh, you know, over and over what I heard from the women um, were something to the fact as, well, you know, we are we're unable to live, you know, in our communities Uh Either we sit and wait with our arms crossed for death to come to us and our families, or we take the chance and, and confront death uh, in the hope of maybe getting across and finding a better place uh, for our, for ourselves and for our children. They, they know fully well uh, of the risks that are involved. Women coming from Central America, America know fully well that even when they cross Mexico, they are encountering even more perilous uh, conditions. And even so, they are willing to take that risk because there is little that their communities are offering in terms of well-being and security. Uh, So they know fully well. And I think, you know, it's really important to mention that, in 1994 when nafta was created was ratified and adopted we also had the u.s border patrols strategy 1994 and beyond which was the building of the triple wall structures that we have along at the u.s mexico border uh which is kind of ironic because uh, nafta was sold to the american people by saying that with this treaty there would be less migration to the U.S. So the question that, you know, we pose is, well, if they were so confident that less migration would come after NAFTA, why in that very same year did they allocate money to create these triple wall structures along the border, right? So the the Border Patrol strategy says very clearly it was written uh, that was Doris Meisner, who was then uh, the head of the INS, this was before Department of Homeland Security, who said, we know fully well that when people cross the border through more treacherous parts of the desert, that they will risk their lives, and we are counting on their assessment of that risk to not for them to decide not to cross into the United States. But you know, they say nothing about the economic devastation <clears throat> that we as a country have produced in those other countries that would create a near-death experience at home. So when people leave, it is it is seriously, they're leaving conditions that would very, very well produce their death, although it would be a slow death, in exchange for, perhaps, being able to cross into the United States and have, um, you know, the freedom to be able to work and provide for their families. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, You know, obviously, the last um, year or so, the child separation um, at the border has been a big issue. What is the history of child separation as a a, a public policy for America?
1: Well, uh, you know, the our immigration policies has always emphasized family reunification I mean that's been that's been codified in our immigrant um, in our immigration um, policy you know the the large document that we have that governs that that uh, states you know not only the philosophy behind the, the laws but also the mechanism by which people are reunited so this is very different um, but it's, it's got to be understood within the context of other things on the border. And I just barely mentioned a little while ago how, how difficult it was crossing into the U.S.-Mexico border. But the Border Patrol, and it's as, as agents of this larger Department of Homeland Security, what they, you know, this is a pattern, this is a particular pattern that you don't see and they don't talk about. But there are things that they do on the border that occurs outside of the purview, outside of the, the vision of what we as JQ public can, can notice is that they do things to create greater harm on people trying to cross into the United States. So it's there's a kind of a meanness behind it. Um, lateral repatri- repatriation, This is, this is an example. So if somebody gets picked up here on our border uh, between Arizona and New Mexico, uh, or Arizona and Mexico. And so then they're, they're processed through uh, the Border Patrol detention, and instead of repatriating them there uh, in the same place where they were caught, they take them elsewhere, say, to Texas to repatriate them, right? And when they do that, they know that they are away from any connection from anybody. Sometimes their families have been separated, they will... Uh, Say for example, if they're traveling in a group, they will send some family members to Texas. They'll uh, deport others to Cal- in California and others in Arizona, to separate them, just to cause uh, more anguish and anxiety, and also put them in greater uh, risk conditions. Because when you are being deported to a place that you know nothing about, you know you're preyed upon by by officials, by police, by cartels. And so there, there's always – there's been that element of family separation for a long time, you know, but with respect to how people are repatriated after they're caught by uh, Border Patrol on the U.S. side of the border. Mm. So uh, we've had uh, the family separation. Uh, we, were, we got hints of this as a strategy with the post-deal rates. I don't know if you might remember. Uh, in Iowa, uh, like more than 350 – Mostly Central American uh, uh, folks were. uh, There was a raid on that factory, on that meat processing factory. More than 300 people were arrested. Mostly they were Central America, Central Americans, and mostly they were women. And they brought them to. They brought them. They separated them from their families, from where they were. They brought them to a makeshift court system in Texas uh, to prosecute them and they were separated from their children and their families. Um, and a lot of those women who were caught, you know, also didn't want to cooperate with authorities and tell them, you know, who had custody or where their children were uh, because they didn't want the authorities to to go get those children and take them away from wh- whatever caregiver they had left them entrusted to. So we've had elements of that, and it's just a it's a strategy to create more anxiety, more harm to the people that they're arresting. It's intentional, and it's uh, frankly, it's, uh, it's abominable.
0: Uh, finally, is there a way, in your opinion, to remove uh, nativism from the conversation regarding immigration? Because what I hear you saying that underneath all of this is sort of fear, Fueled by nativism, fueled by racism, this sort of drives most of the unproductive uh, portions of the immigration debate. And this is, a, as you've just described ex- so eloquently, a very complicated issue.
1: Well, you know, I think the only way you can remove nativism is, again, through education. I'm an educator, so maybe I'm a little biased in that regard. But, uh, you know, this is, let me d- provide an example. Um, you know, back before the 60s, you know, where we still had uh, elements of segregation in our society, Jim Crow laws uh, applied to uh, African Americans in the South and Mexicans in the Southwest. You know, we we didn't have what we call, what we now know as inter- school integration and multicultural education, right? Um, you know, now I look into my... Uh, across my classroom and i see uh students of different colors sitting side by side uh in a same classroom and and we call that that wasn't always so and i always tell the students because many of them are too young to remember you know that it was through the through the demonstrations through um through advocacy through community organizations Coming together in those large marches to demand greater equality, where perhaps we moved the needle in such a way that we created at least multiculturalism in the classroom, and and we you know we reduced the power of nativism because now we could learn from each other and know that we didn't have to fear each other. So the kind of like the the pendulum is you know has swung to the other side. Now we're more divided in many ways, uh, so I think education is a key uh, to mitigate the terrible effects that nativism has. Um, and then you have also the you know the power demographics. We have uh, more and more people who have become. You might recall that before it was against the law for people of different races to. Be married, mm-hmm. You know, and, and so we've gotten rid of many of those laws that kept people separated and segregated. So until we have people who are educated and can vote and can vote in a manner that makes society uh, more tolerant, you know, we could kind of keep social progress on the horizon always as a, as a goal. Uh, you know, I, I don't see a whole lot of other avenues except to have that educated public a uh, more tolerant public, uh, continue their education, vote uh, according to those principles, and uh, vote out those uh, political leaders that are fueling that nativism with their inflammatory rhetoric and misinformation, half baked ideas that are only rooted in, in racist ideas and, and nativism, which has no logic. Uh, there is no science behind that, but in order to kind of bring the science and the logic forward, we have to have an educated public to to dismantle those terrible ideas that only create divisions in our society and make it less tolerant and less safe.
0: Professor Anna Ochoa O'Leary, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on The Public Rally. We were honored to have your voice. Much appreciated.
1: Thank you very much for having me, and thank you very much for, for, this, uh, for bringing up this very important topic.
0: That was Professor Anna Ochoa O'Leary. Stay tuned as we continue our conversation on immigration at the southern border with Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute. Welcome back. We continue our conversation on immigration at the southern border with Sarah Pierce. Pierce is a polyanalyst at the Migration Policy Institute. Sarah Pierce, welcome to The Public Morality.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: When you hear the majority of what's defined as the immigration debate, specifically as it relates to the southern border, is there anything missing in your view?
2: Oh, I think there's a lot missing. I mean, it's it's such a politicized issue, and there are so many motions that run high around this issue that I think a lot of the details on the ground gets left out. You know, what 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 does it mean that we're calling the current situation at the southern border a crisis, and what's causing that crisis, and a slew of other details that, that fail to really... You know, leaving them out fails to really illustrate what's actually happening.
0: You know, I recently heard someone um and, and um, make make a comment on television that kind of struck me, and I wonder what you thought about it. And I, as I thought about it, I thought it had some merit, but they said that where the current immigration debate has uh, come to, it is perhaps the most contentious debate we've had in our country since slavery. How do you see that?
2: Well. I'm specifically an immigration expert, so I can't really suffine on, on other debates that we're having, but I mean, I can say that it is extremely contentious. I mean, just looking at what Congress has and hasn't been able to do alone is is really overwhelming. We really haven't had Congress pass any major reforms of our legal immigration system since 1990, so in nearly three decades all the legislation that has gotten through, which hasn't been much, on immigration has been focused on enforcement. We ha- are stuck um, and unable to to fix the, the major problems with our system, um, and, and we're suffering as a result. Our legal immigration system is extremely outdated. It's not serving us in the ways we want or need, and we have 11 million people living in the United States in unauthorized status. We're benefiting from the ties they have to our economy and the ties they have, you know, socially to our communities. Um, but they're living in the shadows and living in really precarious legal situations. So there's a lot of problems that exist and a lot of stalemate that exists on this issue.
0: And, and because you are a policy analyst and you take policy very seriously, I, I'm just fascinated when, when you hear that the president is just threatening to cut off trade with Mexico, which also happens to be our third largest trading partner. As a policy analyst, what goes through your mind?
2: So I think a lot of a lot of what's going on with the president is kind of the intersection of of politics and and his position among his base and then the reality of, of policy on the ground. And and the president, you know, really has at the front of his mind the politics of the situation that he wants to be seen doing something on on immigration, and, and along with that, his instinct in this current crisis has been to kind of punish me- the transit com- country, Mexico, or the, the source countries, Central American countries, to punish them um, just so he can be seen to be doing something. But that's an instance where the politics of the situation really contrasts with what's needed on, on the policy side. We really need to be working with these countries. That's the only way we're going to get to a solution. Um, and in, the president's instinct to, to punish them is really working against himself.
0: And I know a lot of people will say that they don't take the president literally, they take him seriously or, or wh- whatever that is, but the president's words in those types of situations do matter, and we can't pretend they don't. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, some of these um, threats that he's made have come to fruition, right? The Department of State is withholding, funds to the three northern triangle countries guatemala honduras and el salvador um and that's that's a really big deal those countries you know we have great projects on the ground in those countries that are have been documented to improve conditions um and they they're now you know being held up by this president's um instincts to lash out
0: it it seems to me that much of the immigration debate has been, is is specifically uh, around the southern border, has been neatly condensed into a uh, one-size-fits-all definition that draws little distinction between those who who may come to the southern border because of economic concerns and motivated in that manner, as opposed to those who are coming out of fear, hence political asylum. And I, I wonder if you could break that down, given your experience on on some of the multiple reasons that people are coming to the southern border.
2: I think you just characterized it really well. It's a mixed flow. We definitely have people who are legitimate asylum seekers who are fearing persecution in their home countries, but we also have people who are incentivized by economic reasons. Um, You know, the U.S. has an incredibly tight job market right now, and a lot of these countries are going through devastating economic conditions, um, so there's a lot of incentive there. Unfortunately, coming to the United States for economic reasons doesn't fit within our legal definitions of asylum. Um, So this definitely is a mixed flow, but the problem we have right now is that the president and his administration really treats it as if there are no legitimate asylum seekers in this flow. Their goal is to deter asylum seekers from even getting to the border, to limit how many are able to apply for asylum, and then limit how many ultimately get it. Um, When in reality, what we need are fair and efficient adjudication of these individuals claims so we can allow asylum seekers in and we can turn back those whose claims are less than legitimate mm-hmm.
0: uh, what is uh, since it recently occurred at the time of this broadcast what is the significance uh, uh, for the immigration debate from your perspective now that Homeland Security uh, secretary um, Kirsten Nielsen has announced her departure.
2: There are two big things that stand out to me. The first is that it's it's being widely reported that um, she was ousted because she wasn't willing to to go hard enough on the president's immigration agenda, which is really wild because she, you know, it's, argu- it's arguable that she was the most hardline um, secretary of Homeland Security on immigration that we've ever had. She, you know, oversaw some of the president's harshest policies, uh, most notably, of course, family separation. So, so that's kind of wild to think that they want someone to go even more extreme than she did. Um, and also, how could it possibly be legally feasible to go even more extreme than she did? So those are some you know, big questions. But then the other thing is the timing of this. So right now, we do have a crisis at our southern border. We have an unprecedented number of asylum seekers Especially families arriving, um, and we're only—we're not yet at the peak of that crisis. Typically, apprehensions along the southern border peak in about May. It Just—it tends to be a bit of a seasonal trend, and we haven't even reached the peak yet. Um, so this is a really odd and and precarious time for the Department of Homeland Security to not have a leader.
0: Um, you mentioned um, crisis and. Um Why do you define it as a crisis, and and give give our listeners just a little backdrop on on why it is is a crisis at the southern border.
2: Sure, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not we should properly frame this as a crisis, especially because historically we're not at the highest we've ever seen for apprehensions at the southern border. The high peak was the year 2000 when 1.6 million individuals were apprehended at the southern border. And then this year, we think it's going to get to about 900,000 by the end of the year, so significantly less than we saw in the year 2000. But the, the difference is the who, uh, who these flows are. Um, in the year 2000, those 1.6 million were largely single males from Mexico who could be quickly turned around as a border. Um, but now the so vast majority of the flow, 60% of recent arrivals, our families and children who are applying for asylum. This is a much more resource-intensive flow. We need to, um, you know, care for these individuals differently. They require significantly more resources and personnel. And then we need to adjudicate their asylum claims. And our system at the southern border is just completely ill-prepared to handle this. Um, So it is is a crisis. It's maybe not quite the crisis that the the president is framing i would not frame this as a security crisis um but it definitely is you know getting to crisis proportions where we're seeing a cascading effect right we have long wait times at ports of entry because personnel have been redistributed to help you know care for and process these families uh and we you know we're dealing with other problems similar to that so it's a crisis just maybe not the one that the president has discussed
0: and then uh, just recently, Judge Richard Seaborg um, uh, sort of, I guess that sort of th- threw out um, um, uh, the, the, the policy to make political asyl- uh, those seeking political asylum uh, return to Mexico and not have, for lack of a better word, the due process that is normally granted to those who seek asylum.
2: Right, yeah, that was a... That was a big hit for this administration. The administration had really been relying on expanding this, this migration protection protocols, or, or also called Remain in Mexico policy, in which they make asylum seekers wait in Mexico. Um, and, and the judge you know, enjoined that, um, and that was really the only thing the administration had going for it as far as its goals to limit asylum seekers from ever being able to enter the United States. Now their hands really
0: are tied by our legal system. Uh, Earlier on the broadcast, we had uh, Professor Anna Choro-Leary from uh, the University of Arizona on, and I asked her a similar question. I'm going to pose the same question to you, very similar, rather, to you. How do we get to a point that we can actually have a judicious conversation about immigration on the southern border that leads to a viable public policy?
2: I think what we need to focus on are the things that we're doing that are drawing this big population and and really overwhelming us. Um, This administration has implemented a bunch of start-stop policies that are extremely harsh along the southern border. Family separation is a really good example, the asylum ban, even just the threats to shut down the border. All of these policies have created an urgency in this current migrant flow. They're, you know, hearing these presidents' threats and thinking, I have to get to the border as quickly as possible because who knows when the next hammer is going to come down. So, you know, fixing that and addressing that and realizing that, that we're causing some of this or that the administration, rather, is causing some of this I think is an important first step. But the, the next thing is, is there our outdated asylum system. When individuals ask for asylum at the southern border, they're given a quick preliminary interview after which their file is handed over to our immigration court system, which is extremely backlogged. They're not going to see a judge to adjudicate that asylum claim for three, four, five years down the line. Meanwhile, they're establishing their lives in the United States. This is a bad thing for legitimate asylum seekers who you know, are living in very uncertain terms. They don't know what their future is going to be, and their evidence is getting really outdated. It's also bad for the system. In that, it incentivizes individuals with less than legitimate claims to use this system to come to the United States and establish a life here. So realizing that our asylum system, as is, you know, is a problem and it's causing some of this flow, I think, is a really important step. And I think that is a point where Democrats and Republicans can come together to be like, well, this isn't working. You know, what can we do to to fix this?
0: Sarah Pierce. From the Migration Policy Institute, thank you uh, for joining me today on The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located... At SoundCloud.com, just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank uh...